Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. Hi, I'm Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, Mac. Thank you, everybody. Welcome to West Point, Mississippi, home of Mossy Oak Brand Camo, the Gamekeeper Studio, and all things turkey. As we have, we've just been having so much fun this season. Uh, Daniel is sitting here with us. We got Toxie at the other end, and Daniel, I, I'm gonna just jump right into it. This stamp is selling pretty good, isn't it? I mean, all the proceeds going to turkeys. It's a great project. It is very exciting. Uh, yeah, thanks to. Everybody in this room and uh, Brent, our, our guest today, that we'll get more into that later, but Brent was very instrumental in the stamp. But yeah, it's been really exciting. We've seen all sorts of stuff. I mean, people have been saying we've had people pledge to buy a stamp for every turkey that they kill this season. We've had people pledge to buy a stamp for whatever their state limit is. We've had people uh, that are going to buy even more say they're going to buy one for every turkey that whoops their butt this year. So, uh, <laughs> oh, that'd be a lot for me. Ooh, yeah. I have to go to the bike. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple yeah. and multiple people have already uh, put a stamp in the uh, inside of a glass call, and it looks it looks incredible. Uh, and I know some other guys, Spence Halford included, are planning on making you know fifteen to twenty and auctioning them off, and then donating more money to the uh, turkey fund. So yeah, it's been. I mean, the enthusiasm that everyone has yeah. uh, shown around it is pretty exciting. I mean, I think we all hold uh, turkey culture in high regard, but it's, it's, I've been very impressed. Uh, by the enthusiasm that's been shown. Uh, yeah. It's made me really proud of the turkey community. Yeah. At least yeah, our exactly people, right. our people that we're friends with. Yeah. Uh, Strength is in numbers, yeah. and we've, we've got a lot of people. And it's not too late to order one. They can go. It's not. We're going to continue selling them th- until the last turkey mm-hmm. season ends, and who knows, maybe even through the summer if people are still trickling in uh, left and right. But at the very least, we'll continue to sell them until you know that first week of June when the last – Turkey season ends, and most people have, have forgotten about uh, turkeys. Where is that last turkey season? Oh, there's never, it, it never it ends somewhere. It might be in South America or <laughs> New Zealand or somewhere else. We can already phone a friend. I'm sure Brent knows what the last season that, uh, that Canada probably. Well, Maine is I was was what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're headed to Maine at the end of May. We are. And I know that. No, sorry, <laughs> that was very impolite. That don't have, we don't have room for the rest. Of oh, <laughs> you, Neil, myself, and our cousin Jack. Uh, we're going at the end of May. Oh, so that sounds like fun. It'll be, be exciting. But yeah, the stamp stamp's available uh, when this podcast is released. It'll be, continue to be available throughout the end of turkey season. And to anyone listening that has bought one already, uh, thank y'all. Y'all have made an incredible project, uh, a huge success. And I think the most important thing beyond uh, the good that we're going to be able to do with the money that's been raised, and I think we're going to be able to make everyone who donated to the cause proud of 
the, what they supported. Beyond that, I know that we've already gotten momentum from some state agencies that uh, had procrastinated launching their reinvigorating their stamp programs that might have been defunct for a few decades. Uh, I've already heard from a few, and I know Adam Butler in Mississippi were close to reintroducing theirs. I think the impact beyond the money that we're able to raise is going to be um, hopefully double-digit states that reintroduce their stamp programs here pretty soon. And, you know, the good that that does for the turkey is going to be well beyond what just the money that we were able to raise. Yeah, that's awesome. There we go. <laughs> so that's that's what they sound like, right? Yeah. Well, are you having trouble there? No, no it's just exactly why this is so important. Yeah. It is different times. It is not like the old days. Well, and, you kind of uh, look like you got your lip poked out. Has it been a, a rough week? No. Has it been for you? It has been for me. It's, yeah. been, a, it's been a great week, but I just know that the numbers are down, and I'm hearing it from everywhere. And, yes, ours are down, too. And so um, it's just great to see how much everybody cares and rallies behind that. But, yeah, um, I worry about them. You know, when they start just disappearing, when you find one dead on your place and send it in and they say it has a pretty lethargic disease or whatever they, you know, I mean, it gets me worried. So yeah. um, it's uh, it's time for everyone to rally behind what's best for the turkey. Uh, you know, our guest last week said, you know, you got to make them before you take them. That's right. And if we can breed that into people, I mean, we need it worse than ever right now. It, we went through years and years of what just – you know, smashing crowd, it's great. Populations are growing. They're putting them in new places. They're booming. But that hadn't been happening. And so if you really care about it, I don't care who you are, you got to take stock of that. What he said is a great way. you got to make them before you take them. That's right. And that's the gamekeeper way. We're trying to yeah. help instilling people, too. But I'm, I'm concerned because, you know, there is clearly no one answer. And the only way we get there is with everybody pulling together, every state, Every state wildlife organization, everybody, every landowner, every punt club, everybody needs to stand up and take note of what's best for the turkeys. And if, you know, if it means making some sacrifices money wise, how many you kill or whatever it is, we got to make those sacrifices. That's right. We got to do all the above. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I was talking to a customer on the phone yesterday. Uh, he is not a hunter, but is a, a landowner uh, on the edge of a, a big watershed lake in North Alabama. And uh, he has an area where turkeys come out, and he was asking, how can I make habitat for nesting for yep. his turkeys? A great question. And uh, he doesn't hunt. but So that's that's inspiring to hear. Yeah, it sure is. Well, look, before we get on with Brent, we'll do a proper introduction. I wanted to, to tell something. What, one of our favorite gamekeepers, Jeff Foxworthy, has a special on Netflix, just kind of trying to help Jeff out a little bit. The COVID, you know, they couldn't do those, I guess they call them concerts oh, for yeah. mm-hmm. 18 months, for a long time. So he's excited to get this thing launched. So, it, guys, uh, Jeff is a good guy, and he's a gamekeeper himself. He's the he, best. He really is. He's one of the most caring, unselfish people you'll ever know. And to be so accomplished, so famous, so successful, you would never know it. No. He, you're right. They say if you know that happens to you, you become your true self. And I promise you, he has always must have always been a very unselfish, charitable person. Because I don't know if I know anybody, honestly, that gives back more than him. You're, you're exactly right. Yep, those Tuesday Bible studies he does. Oh my He's gosh. just it's incredible. That's amazing. So, yeah. So it's on Netflix, the good old days, guys. Y'all check that out. So now let's move on. We've got a guest here named Brent Rogers. And the best way I can kind of describe you, Brent, is you're a wild turkey historian. That's the like wild the, turkey. I like to think of my, yeah, that's not that? that's not the wild turkey that we consume. I think that's the wild turkey that we call turkey. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, 
I've, I've been known to, to try to study a little of both, but uh, yeah, the feathered turkey is, is a passion for sure. And I, I mean, I, I look at turkey hunting as a sport that really, in the end, is about people. I mean, yes, we love the turkey, but I think there is a, a, a true bond between turkey hunters that doesn't exist with other groups. And, and uh, that's really made me appreciate the people of turkey hunting. So uh, it's great to learn where we've been because that will tell us a lot about where we're going. Well, how did you get so fascinated with with the backstory of the wild turkey? Well, I'm a biologist by degree, so I mean, I've I grew up a hunter, a farm boy from Iowa. Always been, you know, have always had wildlife as part of my uh, lifestyle and and a part of of who I am. And I I can tell you that it was in 1988 when I saw the first wild turkey on our farm in Iowa and I was immediately captivated. It was such a thing of, of grace. Uh, it was a hen got up out of a fence row. My brother and I were pheasant hunting and flew away. And I just, I just could, could not get that image out of my mind of that wild turkey. And we had raised turkeys, bronze turkeys growing up. And so I'd spent a lot of time around turkeys and listening to vocalizations and, and enjoyed all that. Um, but that really kind of got me connected to, you know, the idea that the wild turkey had a place in our, in our world, in our farm. And I immediately tried to learn all I could, uh, went out, started getting videos and, and uh, college happened uh, for a few years. And then 1996, I really started getting after the hunting. But I think it was all those roots from the farm and from being a hunter and, and moving on to study biology that kind of really got it all connected to me. Well, Daniel tells me that you've got every book that's ever been printed on the wild turkey, <laughs> and uh, maybe maybe you're a big fan of the Dewey Decimal. So have it, you've, but you've got it all there, right there, and, and lots of others. Could you kind of tell about your collection there? And yeah, sure. I mean, I think again, uh, you know, I I've always loved to read, so I had kind of a little bit of a bibliophile gene in me somehow. And and again, I I remember it was probably in the late 90s, maybe around eight, 98 or 99, I realized I've only got half a dozen books on turkeys, uh, ones I'd picked up to learn. And, and I'd started to discover there was quite a bit more out there. And uh, as I started to look, I was actually surprised how many of those books were, were history books in a sense. Uh, some of those books that were written in the, in the you know, early 1900s are, are really a connection to uh, the past and, and the lessons that they learned are still applicable now. And so I started picking them up. Uh, I met a couple of collectors that helped to whip me around the corner in terms of uh, what books were out there. And so I think just in the last few years, yeah, Daniel, I'm, I'm aspiring to get every one. There's still a few eluding me, but but I've got a thousand different publications on wild turkeys and that doesn't include the over a thousand magazines <laughs> and uh, you know, hundreds of videos and you know, you name it, audio, audio stuff and a couple thousand calls or more. And, and I've just kind of, again, started to pick up a lot of the historical aspect of how this connects back to pe connects back to people and the stories we want to tell and the stories about who we are. And uh, the story of the wild turkeys embedded in all that. It, it's amazing, Dudley. You look like you're just salivating over there. Well, I mean, I, I, we've we've never met in person. You know, I've just gotten about five minutes of you, and 
I want to be your best friend already. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is great. So, look, why don't we start here? What could you tell us, in your opinion, what you think the turkeys were like back in the day? Maybe let's start around when Columbus arrived, or sometime back in during the Native American era. Yeah, I mean, you know, turkeys were were a pretty major part of of the Native American world. I mean, some estimates will say there were 10 million turkeys back then. And we think about there being 6 million now. So, I mean, that's, that's quite a lot of turkeys. And, and, and again, some of those early writings, there's a book that a, a gentleman named Albert Hazen Wright. Um, it's not a book. It's actually a series of four articles he did in 1914 and 15 published in a journal called the Ock, which, which of course is about birds. It's an ornithological journal. He wrote a series of articles where he, he went back and researched writings as far back as he could, which were the Spanish from the 1500s and then on to the European settlers in the 1600s and pulled out a lot of the, you know, writings about wild turkeys. And it was pretty fascinating to see turkeys had been domesticated by that time by the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Puebloans or what we call maybe the Anasazi um, in the Americas, as well as there's even some evidence that uh, in the southeast part of the country, there was some domestication of turkeys. So turkeys had become part of life for Native Americans, um, both in terms of somewhat of a domestic aspect. And, and I think in a culture that, and, and if there's this idea of, you know, gamekeepers to me extends back to, to that kind of society, right? Where it's use all the animal, respect the land you're on because that's where your food comes from. And that's, you know, if, if anything, learn, learn to be a good ancestor as, as Jonas Salk uh, in the science field, field said, because those are the, those are the things that we, that we will pass on to others. I think the Indians, the way they lived had some sustainability there. They were using some fire. As we think about prescribed fire, that, that was something in their toolbox. They were using the feathers to make blankets. Um, there, there's actually a lady that I, I saw a while back made a blanket out of 17,000 wild turkey feathers that is essentially the same thing they used to make. Um, and it's kind of the downy feathers. It's not the the primary wings and things like that. But, you know, using spurs for arrow tips and using bones for awls and for uh, tubes and, and, of course, for calls, all kinds of things. I mean, there's so much utility in a turkey besides meat and eggs that, that I look back at that pre-Columbian area. Uh, uh, era and and you even see the turkey in mythology there with some of the Indians. Um, I thought one of the neat ones I read. I think it was in that uh, book by uh, by Hazen Wright was um, one one of the legends passed down is the turkey's beard was taken from the turtle, and uh, there's a whole story around that, right? So it, you know, quite quite an interest in trying to to see how that was part of the Indian culture. Native American culture. You've got the, you've got cave drawings discovered a few years ago in Tennessee that were strutting turkeys painted on a cave wall. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty intriguing to me to think that people have been captivated and wanted to capture that image for centuries. So, I mean, I, I think for sure what the, the Spanish and uh, European settlers encountered 
was a little um, a little bit surprising at how much the turkey was a part of daily life. Of course, the Spanish took the turkey back and introduced that to, to Spain in 1519 or 20. And then what's funny is that the European settlers brought turkeys back with them to the Plymouth colony, the pilgrims did, kind of reintroduced domestic turkeys back. And, uh, and it, we, we know there were many turkeys because some of the early naturalists talk about uh, a chain of gobbles, right? So there, there was, uh, I think that was um, Charles Lucien Bonaparte, um, who would have been going around in the, um, the 1800s and said that there would be a gobble on a hillside and it would trigger a chain of gobbles for hundreds of miles is, is what, how he described it. So it would have been neat to, to experience that, huh? Pinch me. <laughs> I'd still mess that up somehow, I, I can tell you. So fast forward just a little bit. How did we go from having so many turkeys to a time period where the turkeys were almost gone away? Well, no, no surprise to anybody sitting around this table. But, you know, of course, there was there was quite a tremendous amount of habitat disruption. You, you had people building homes and burning wood and and uh, commercializing natural resources and 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 the landscape changed pretty dramatically there's not a lot of you know what I would call old growth timber <laughs> in this country right because it's been cut and and as that happened those traditional spaces whether it was a, a big timber or border habitat things changed um, the settlers definitely I think, didn't understand the benefit of fire and suppress that. So then you also weren't developing that early successional habitat when, when you take those tools away. In addition, you start planting farms and you create food sources for turkeys that, hey, they're not, they're not going to resist that. They're going to come in and eat the, the, the peas and the, the corn and, and uh, then they make themselves a bit more vulnerable the hunting technology change. It's still something that we're, we're trying to get our heads around how even now hunting technology is changing so fast that we have to think about what does that mean for the turkey? And, and clearly we, we've got a situation where turkeys have been hunted only with very primitive weapons. And no matter what tactics the Native Americans employed, at the end of the day, you've got a stick or an arrow or a stone. You don't have a firearm. And and clearly all those things combined really, really stack the odds against the wild turkey when you've got a bunch of, of new people with new technologies and new land management practices. Um, we, we definitely went from 10 million down to, some people will say between 30 or 200,000 uh, by the 1940s. So quite a drastic impact. Hmm. Was, what was kind of the timeline of, uh, if you know, of across the country? Because I know different states had different levels and varying levels of population, and some they're completely extirpated. And some states, I know Aldo Leopold talks about not having turkeys, uh, you know, whatever, back to the 1870s or whenever it was in Wisconsin. And Mississippi right. and Alabama had a sustained population for longer. How, was, how did that like kind of spread throughout the country? Yep. Well, yeah, there's, there's been, there's, there's some good reading on that. If you look at some of the wild turkey symposiums or some of the biology books that were written, uh, you know, Dixon and Levitt Williams and, and folks like that, Bill Healy, uh, they've spelled some of that out pretty good, but by 1925, um, there was o over 20 states uh, out of the original 39 that had them that either were closed seasons or extirpated. So, 
you know, you know, by the, the early 1900s that, you you know, you didn't have turkeys in half the states that you, you did when the, you know, the settlers arrived. And, and you can look back and see the signs um, way earlier than 1920. So in just what little research I did, it was in 1708 that there was the first protection in the colonies for wild turkeys. And that was in New York, where New York colony basically said, can't shoot turkeys. And, and then you had other states along the way, Connecticut saying by 1813, hey, no more turkeys here. Virginia in 1842, uh, they were extirpated and, and so on and so forth, as well as you saw regulations being put in place throughout that time. And that's what's been fun is I've gone back to a lot of the old shooting journals um, and you can find, you know, sections of those journals where even back in the 1800s, they'll list the hunting regulations and laws. Um, and so you got protection for turkeys starting back in the 1800s, like 1840, um, Pennsylvania uh, made a rule, no turkey pins, because, you know, setting up a turkey pin and baiting it where the turkeys kind of have to go you know, in and up into the cage, and then they can't get back out. Um, there were some counties in Pennsylvania that started to outlaw that. There were there were states that started to outlaw snares. Alabama was one of those, actually. 1854, Alabama um, says no more snares for turkey. Um, 1897, I'm looking, I've got a couple dates written down. Pennsylvania, no turkey pens. Um, and then there's even some ones I thought were pretty interesting. 1901, there were three states that came out with regulations. That was uh, um, Michigan and Missouri, I know for sure were amongst them, but they said no explosives to hunt wild turkeys. <laughs> so somebody at that point, you know, had had been trying to, to harvest turkeys and uh, probably for market hunting, right? So that was another kind of a major impact was not just commercial logging, but also market hunting. I mean, you had laws that came along like in uh, uh, 19, what was it? 1940, no, 1937 was Pittman-Robertson right. um, where where they made the, the funds available for, uh, you know, for, for some matching funds. And then there was a 1940 was the wildlife restoration program that actually started to, to do some work to, to get, funds available to do restoration work, but all the way back to 1900, um, the Lacey Act said no more trafficking. And, and that you'd think that there was also civil efforts happening, but they weren't enough. The bottom line is changing the law wasn't enough um, and may still be the case today, right? Yeah, there's, there, there's a need for all of us that are the consumers <laughs> to change our behaviors, not depend on law enforcement to do that for us. And that, I think we started the conversation out by saying that takes some sacrifice, right? Sometimes, sometimes we're going to have to make sacrifices for the long-term good. You know, uh, in changing our habits, uh, at least for me, has changed. If the point of all of this is to kill turkeys, then honestly, we're going to end up having it taken away from us. But if the point of it is to enjoy them, just to be in their presence, and then yeah, as a um, as a gift, as just a gift, a privilege, you know, if you have enough of them to be able to harvest one, if you look at it that way, then 
I think we can all get to a better place and we can all pull together and we can solve the issues of today. Uh, but if we, quite honestly, it's just, it is what it is. It's not me on some kind of rant or whatever. It's just the fact. If it's just about killing turkeys and if what you see in social media and whatever today is just about killing turkeys, we're missing the point. And then the other thing that's sad about people like that, I mean, I'm frustrated when I have a bad year, but you know what? I got to get over it. Um, if, if you, if you make that the point, then you're going to be, you know, you're going to lose a lot of days. You're going to be upset. You're going to have a bad spring or whatever. But just if you if you just enjoy being in their presence, and you, you know what I miss more than if I shoot one or not is just being in their presence. They're gobbling, they're strutting, they're responding to you know to me. You got that personal thing going on where they're coming to what you're putting out, and it's just it's kind of hard if someone hadn't done it to describe all turkey hunters, all turkey lovers know about it. But we just have to change our mindset, and in doing so, we can get a lot better time out of life and a lot better time, the precious moments we got in life right now with turkeys. So, I mean, you just got to have a little better change of heart and care about them. If you really love them and you really love killing them, you got to be like Marcus said. You got to make them first, and then you can take them. Mm. And that's a great little saying for all of us. Mm. I, I do have a question. I've seen so many different published little maps in my time of, you know, the history of the population of wild turkeys in it. The one that always stuck in my mind was when they were about extinct, so to speak, in this lowest ebb. A map I saw had had a, a the largest spot of a concentration of anything left in the country was in southwestern Alabama, which actually I grew up down there hunting. And then there was a little tiny strip on the Mississippi River like south of Memphis somewhere. And then that was all it showed at the lowest ebb. And I was just wondering, is there any hard documentation of where they really were when they were, you know, at their lowest ebb? Yeah. I mean, so there's some conflicting information, I think, there. But it's I, I do think it's pretty well established that it's between 30,000 and 200,000 turkeys. And I think there were definitely some populations outside of those those two areas you mentioned. I do think that the, the that's right. That's where there was kind of a str- the, the stronghold of turkeys left, right. you know, in, in what we would think of as that traditional part. There were some additional, you know, we had Rio Grandes and Merriams and other parts of the countries that had populations that that's where I think you go beyond 30,000 to, to, there's right. a few more that were there getting a little less pressured. Right. Um, that but was gonna, I, think, I think those maps are accurate. That was going to be my question if that was the case, if what I had seen was close to being accurate, then where did the Rio and the Merriam come from? And then uh, and I know Dr. Chamberlain talked about the history of the, uh, like the Osceola versus the Eastern and then how that changed. Uh, so I guess that's multiple questions. First would be, where did the, the Rio Grande and the Miriam evolve from? And then the other part is like, how does the, you know, how does the, the question about the Osceola versus the traditional Southeastern, Eastern Turkey? And then these big giant, you know, 28 pounders from the Midwest. I mean, how has that evolved? So I guess that's a two part question. Yep. Well, I mean, even as a biologist, I'm not fully equipped because uh, I've been making my living in the food science world. So <laughs> haven't dedicated myself near. I mean, you, you've had guests on your show that would, I think, be probably even better equipped, but just some thoughts about that. So what's interesting to me is you look back at the domesticated turkeys that the that the Native Americans had, especially the Mayans and Aztecs. And, and I did exchange, you know, some some messages with uh, Dr. Kinemar uh, about this. 
Um, Lovett Williams and others hypothesize based on the genetics that that turkey that those domestic ones came from is a now extinct subspecies of tur turkey. It would have been a sixth one called the the, the Mexican turkey. Um, so so that Sorry. particular turkey we don't even have anymore Sorry. that our domestic turkeys kind of came from. Um, and then you've got, uh, of course, the other subspecies where uh, what I can't tell you is, you know, what was that kind of common uh, root that, that everything came from, but clearly have been since the pre-Columbian times established in the populations they're in. So, so I think by the time that the Spanish arrived and the, and the, the, the pilgrims came, those species were already established in those traditional habitats that we think of. And of course, we've moved turkeys around quite a bit oh, in yeah. terms of reintroducing them. But where, where we look at those maps that, that are put together, where this is kind of where the, the, the subspecies uh, primary domains are at, would have been right even for that time. Wow. That's one of my, always been one of my, you know, whatever arrogant <clears throat> sources of pride, if you want to call it that or whatever, that the place I grew up hunting had been a turkey hunting club since 1926, which predates yep. the lowest ebb. And it is in southwestern Alabama. So uh, I've always been very, you know, proud of that, that I got to grow up from the earliest age, you know, in the 60s as a little bitty kid, surrounded by people that are, you know, extremely experienced turkey hunters already and listening to them talk and you know i just observed this part of why who i am today is what it is because i was imprinted at such an early age and then as i got a little older i realized how really really fortunate i was you know to have been around that so what do you yep. think was going on in the mobile delta that made it so <clears throat> special I mean, he could probably speak to that but i think it was such a vast area that was you know there was just nothing but great big chunks of land there was no small landowners and it's just almost inaccessible and so i just think honestly i think they were on their way out even there and um you know at the story is the gentleman that kind of founded all that down there where i grew up is called choctaw bluff that's where the mossy oak tree was and all the stimson family had a, a big sawmill in mobile and they were really really close friends with daddy they're i guess the 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 one that started all was Mr. Fred Stimson, and supposedly he and another friend of his, uh, Mr. Radcliffe, and you know I may be that's what I recall. They got they were killing so many turkeys that they both realized, especially Mr. Stimson, like if we keep this up, they're going to be gone. And I think they had a, a, a consciousness of what was going on around the country too. So he was one of the real pioneers, I think, in law enforcement in that part of the world also, and helping fund it and everything else. And so. You know, they helped spread that. But by the time that happened, uh, you know, they were almost extinct. And I do I do know that in some form he had a way that he was able to get this Fred Stimson sanctuary for the state and then I guess the federal government too. And I think more turkeys can be traced from there than anywhere in the country. That's where they invented the cannon net, which turned the whole thing around. Mm. Now, that I've always been, you know, that was right there within sure. a few miles of where I grew up hunting. And they've always had a population. You know, now they didn't have as many when I was a kid as they have in subsequent years. But I think like a lot of other places, uh, I haven't been there in a while, but their peak was in like the early 2000s, you know, late 1990s, 2000s. And it's trended down, up and down some. Uh, nothing like it used to be, though, you know, 20 years ago. And that's what we're all fighting for. Right? And we had this 
meteoric rise as we began to, I mean, to, to place them all over the country in the Cannon Network. That's how we got them here, Daddy. Talked to the Gaming Fish in Mississippi, and they brought us some over from the Mississippi Delta over there at Catfish Point. And we had 10 hens and two jakes that we got in May, and just a miracle they took off from there. And that's how that happened all over the country. But now we're, you know, we've got to push past that. Everybody, you know, first of all, led by our biologists, led by people like him, and, and then put by us. You know, we're responsible for this. It's a new age, and we can't just keep placing them everywhere and thinking that they're just going to keep growing. And there's, you know, no matter how many we kill, there'll be just that many more next year. We, yeah. We've changed. And so we're to that tipping point in my, my mind. I've watched this and listened, you know, we're at a tipping point for everybody to pull together that cares so we can have a future of abundance with them. But it's very complicated today in this age we live in. Uh, clearly, no matter who you talk to, there is a cross current of so many different things going on right now. And I think it's great for this podcast to listen to him. I need to hush. But to know where you've come from helps you so much in appreciating what you have and charting the future. Hey, let me just jump in here real quick and and think about this, guys. So at a time when there weren't when the turkeys were population was kind of dwindling, that Mobile Delta, the Alabama River. That's I think there's a confluence of several rivers right there. Yeah, it's just Alabama, Tom Beebe, but it all you know there's it's, it's just there's this mass of rivers, you know, and and streams going down through there in that delta. So it's obviously great habitat. Yeah. So so with many places that have lost their turkeys, but that Stimson family that. But I'm just thinking about the generosity of yeah. of that family to say, yeah, you can well, let's trap some of our turkeys and take yeah. them to somewhere else. Well, they they actually, I think they were thought even smarter than that. They weren't actually giving up their own per se. They arranged whatever form it was named for him, so so that the state had their own place that it didn't they didn't have to lean on landowners. Now they've been I know of a lot even here. Uh, the legendary Circle M down here in Macon, and Mr. Miner, you know, when I was a little kid, he had given so many deer and turkeys back to the state of Mississippi to trans, you know, to move around and to transplant places. You know, there's probably stories like that too numerous to even count. But I do know that the the real pioneering place was at Fred Simpson Sanctuary. That's where they invented the mm. the cannon net per yeah. se. That's, that's a great story. That's a gamekeeper story for it sure. Is, it is. Yeah. We need to figure out who all. I, you know, we'll talk about that offline. I think he's still alive and he's retired. Oh, wow. The guy that did all that. And I, we'll talk about it offline. I may, I may get a name wrong or something. Yeah. So you know, I should talk about that because that would be so historic to talk about. Because sure that is would. the single handedly, that device changed what we're looking at today. Mm-hmm. I mean, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have them here either. Hey, this is Mac. Checking game cameras is one of the many pleasures I get from gamekeeping. OnX helps keep track of my camera locations to be sure I'm getting the information that I need to make the best decisions for the wildlife. Try it out for yourself and see. Use coupon code MOSSYOAK to save 20% on your OnX subscriptions. Know where you stand. Well, uh, I know I'm, I'm looking at all the books on your bookshelf in the background. Uh, I've read some of the older turkey books and that enthused me when I was younger. Uh, I've told the story a few times, but I had a, had an old 10th Legion and a flaming Turkey. That was my dad's and an old love at Williams book. And I left them at an oil change place and, uh, haven't seen them since. But, uh, so what, if you could pick, I don't know, five of the older books that you would recommend 
somebody start out on um, to to get you going in the in the turkey book world? Great question. Yeah. Yep. And I'd say 10th Legion it, it pops to mind and it's not the oldest, right? It's 1973. But what, what I love about 10th Legion is it's not limited to, um, you know, here's how things were, or it's not some of the older books may be pretty overtly one style of hunting or more fall hunting or something. Whereas 10th Legion, it's, it's not even as much about turkey hunting as it is a, I call it a turkey hunter's manifesto, right? I mean, it's proclaiming our passion, our obsession, our love, just as Mr. Toxie was saying for the turkey and, and, and how wonderful and aggravating that can be. And, and I think it's, it, there's something in 10th Legion that speaks to that part of us that, that only turkey hunters get, right? I mean, it, it truly is a book written for the turkey hunters. Um, and, and so that one I think has some really great, it's not a storytelling book. It's not a how to book. It's more about the lifestyle we live. And I, I always think that's a great one for people to read. When you go back and look at some of the uh, original books, the, the first one that came out was, uh, the one that, that, uh, McElhaney, who was the Tabasco fortune, um, heir published in 1914, and and that book uh, is the the wild turkey and its hunting, and it's it's really still a great book. Um, the what was great about it is the the man that actually wrote it was Charles Jordan, and Charles Jordan managed a game estate, uh, almost served as kind of a gamekeeper and a game warden, as well as a very passionate hunter and a little bit of counterculture at the time because he was quite an ardent spring turkey hunter, which uh, was not necessarily embraced by all. And I would say Charles Jordan is also the first grand slammer um, that, that actually recorded it because he talked about traveling and hunting elsewhere, Texas and Colorado. And, and he was traveling to hunt at a time when most people weren't because you couldn't just get in the auto and zip down the road, right? It was, it was a little more involved. And so you read that book that, that McElhaney ends up writing uh, from Jordan's writings. And there's a lot of really neat stuff in terms of, yes, there's a bit of how-to. There's a bit of, you know, turkey vocabulary. There's a bit of, uh, and it's a bit of a deep dive into the biology. Uh, but there's some really great storytelling. It's kind of got a little bit of everything. And, and then what I would say, again, knowing who Jordan was, um, it, it's just kind of endearing. And, and much of it, what I've just said, isn't always even in the book. He, he wrote a series of articles in the late 1800s that appeared in Shooting and Fishing magazine. And from a lot of those, I've been able to lift a lot more about kind of who Jordan was. And, and uh, I, I like the quote in one of the magazines uh, where he says that he knows he's going to catch thunder for hunting in, in the spring, but he'll take all that thunder because he'll never give up a goblin turkey. So something I think a lot of turkey hunters, and I'm a fall hunter too, I love it both, but, but there's something quite magical about, uh, you know, interacting with a turkey, communicating with it, and, and the thrill of the gobble certainly is something that we all get. Gotcha. Those are a couple books. I mean, there, there's the Tom Turpin book, and, and this is, 
you know, an original copy of that book, the Tom Turpin book, which that, that book's quite, quite hard to, to find in the original volume, but it's been reprinted a couple of times. And uh, it's also quite a good book. Um, the last one I think I would mention is, uh, is this one by Henry Davis. And this is the one that's pretty iconic because it's got such a beautiful cover photo. Um, I think Walter Weber was the, the artist that painted that gobbler flying down out of a tree. But Henry Davis uh, was very eloquent as he talked about hunting the wild turkey. Now, he was a fall hunter and he was also hunted with rifles. And so a lot of it, maybe people don't connect as much with in terms of the hunting stories. But you can clearly see his passion. You can see his respect for the turkey. Um, the other thing, he, I think he held himself to a high bar in terms of wanting to represent the turkey right. And uh, he, he had a, his first chapter was called Qualifying the Witness. And in doing so, he said, and rightly so, a lot of the material that had appeared on the turkey up until that time, which was 1949 when that book published, was bunk. It just was, it wasn't right. It was people that were trying to make a buck telling a wild turkey story. And uh, he did, however, give credence to McElhaney and to Turpin uh, to those books because he recognized and he'd done his homework to see that those those were real hunters and they understood turkeys. Um, but again, it's it's a book that has withstood the test of time because we have somebody that so respected the turkey, wanted to tell the story in the appropriate way. And uh, I think those are books that people would would get and enjoy. Well, we kind of fast forwarded past one section that I know you know a lot about that's interesting. Um, and that's the the era of the 1800s heyday of the naturalist ornitho ornithological culture uh, and the very first uh, appearances of, of wild turkeys, even if it wasn't necessarily from people that were uh, turkey hunting, um, the first appearances of uh, wild turkeys in printed media. Yeah, yeah. So that, that that's interesting too, right? Because yeah, prior to having some of these uh, hunting journals, I mean, you, you did have people that were quite interested in Native American flora and fauna, and the wild turkey being iconic as part of that, right? You you had the wild turkey who, um, as, as let's say uh, John James Audubon wrote his book, um, which published in 1827. Um, birds of America, of all the hundreds and hundreds of birds that he covers, the wild turkey gets the first plate in the book. The wild turkey has the longest section of notes in his, um, you know, American birds than any other bird. John James Audubon made his personal seal was a wild turkey. Uh, I just find that so fascinating that, you know, the leading uh, biologist of the day, right, or ornithological expert of the day was so captivated by the turkey. And he was starting to to cry the warning already in the 1800s. You know, Daniel, as you talk about kind of the what, what was going on, he, he was even saying, hey, turkeys are less plentiful in Georgia and the Carolina and virtually every other part of the country. He was calling that out just in his lifetime, he was seeing that happen. So, you know, those, those, uh, those naturalists cared uh, for the birds that they, that they studied, they gave us a gift. And, and some of those, the, uh, the Audubon book, you know, has been 
reprinted many times. You have to look a little harder to find a copy that has the full notes on the wild turkey, but it really is a joy to read. What we also see, though, is that's at a time when the wild turkey still has some real mythology. So the science wasn't completely there. A lot of the naturalists weren't scientists in the same way we think about biologists today. And so you get some you get some mysteries or some half-truths. So I know Audubon w- wrote about how the, the wild turkey gobblers would stomp the nest and break the eggs so they could breed the hen again. Well, there, there may have been one wily gobbler that did that in history, but it certainly hasn't stood the test of time, right? So I think we read some of that and we see how much we've also learned. It's why it's important that we have, you know, the, the conservation stamp work that y'all are doing and, and other funds that we can continue to learn because it's not, I, I like the saying, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. What, what we think we know, all of us, including myself, I've, I've probably believed more things about wild turkeys and found them to be untrue through my pursuits than I've, than I have discovered because we just think we know, we think we know why it is what we have to be is curious. And and I love what <clears throat> Aldo Leopold uh, said, and it was actually when he graduated from Yale, they put this in his, it was his motto was to hell with convention, right? Because it's, it's not what we know. It's what we need to learn, what we need to prove. And I think the naturalists put us on the right track with some of that. And we've continued to expand on that. Fascinating. Story. Yeah. Aldo Leopold, what a fascinating story. So, Unfortunately, poaching has played a big role in the wild turkey through the years. I mean, I can remember hearing, and again, this may be some of that wives' tale stuff that that has been disproven. But old timers would dig a trench, pour corn in it, and let the turkeys come, and and then one shot kill as many as they could. Was it true about people putting trot lines across fields oh. with a piece? Did that really happen? No. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I so mean, sad. you know. Oh. Market hunting drove a lot of that, I think. I mean, there there were probably not a lot of just average Joes out there trying to kill every turkey they could every way they could figure out. There were a lot of hungry people killing turkeys to eat them. Uh, but market hunting was certainly making it much more, you know, much more detrimental to, to the wildlife. And again, all you got to do is look at the game regulations to see that they were outlawing uh, you know, traps, snares, explosives, jack lights, torches. There's so many different things in the regulations you read that they had to outlaw hunting by boat. Um, they were limiting the size of shotguns because uh, people were using punt guns. And that's not just for, for waterfowl, right? I mean, they would, they would bait turkeys uh, in, in a lot of different ways. So, so, but yeah, it was, it was a real problem. Um, I think where, you know, we, we, we see it today kind of, as you said, in kind of, it's like tales, but it originated in, in truth. It was, it was part of what happened to the wild turkey. So you would think that like the depressions that the country's gone through back in the turn of the century, that, that probably really, made things even worse as, as families were just trying to, to feed, feed youngins. Yeah, for sure. I know, I know, you know, for my family that was a farming family and I talked to one of my neighbors um, who basically verbalized the truth of the time and said, we, we lived poor 
right? We didn't have anything, but we never went hungry. <laughs> and I think for the rural folks of the country, a lot of that, a lot of that could be true, right? You might not have had anything, but you had the ability to produce food or harvest food. And uh, yeah, wild game during that time would have would have been highly sought after, and certainly that was uh, that was kind of right along the trend line for you know the curve of where wild turkeys went. And something that you said, Mister Toxie, about you know those areas where wild turkeys still existed in the 1940s. Uh, I think you're exactly right that where where the 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 stronghold of the wild turkeys was left is those big chunks of ground that weren't easily accessible, um, you know, where people had access to turkeys, they'd killed them. They, they, whether it was poaching or not, they'd killed those turkeys. And I think that's why still by the 1940s and fifties, we had this mindset that we, that turkeys had to live in, in big timber, right? Turkeys are big timber birds. That's because that's where they were left. It wasn't because that's where they started. And I think it surprised a lot of people when turkeys populated some of that border habitat land and, and kind of broke that myth. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I always thought that because that's where I grew up and, you know, they were there. But, you know, there was the wintering and early spring of big, big, mature oak timber. And that had a remnant mass that was so critical to late winter, early spring. And that's where you'd find them, quite honestly, until they split up. And hens, you know, everybody, you know, they're all congregated. And then as the spring progresses, then they spread out all over the place, you know. And I'm, I remember this, the banded hen, and they, you know, three years in a row, she went like seven miles from her some her winter ground and nested within 50 yards at the same place. I was just amazed how they had the homing instincts seven like that. Seven miles. Yep, seven miles away. And, it was it was it was some uh, paper company land that had been clear cut and was better nesting habitat than the big timber. So I I just thought that, but I, honestly, it's attractive to them because, as we learned from uh, all, you know the good doctor and others, their number one priority for uh, survival is their eyesight. They don't smell, they hear good, but they don't use it for protection. It's totally eyesight, and so they want to live somewhere they can see. That's why you don't find them in thickets. But the nesting habitat to, for the poults to survive is a little different. And so, um, you know, it wasn't that big timber. It's just we've learned that diversity is the key. Right. And, Brent, the, I think that leads into one thing from a gamekeeper's perspective. Um, you know, the, the evolution of the biology and management of wild turkeys uh, and the way that it was written and published. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a really a wealth of, of information out there. And I think what's neat is one of the very first was uh, it was in the early 1900s. And I don't remember if it was, no, maybe it was 1920, but there was a book by uh, the field museum in Chicago that came out that was basically a little treatise on the wild Turkey. And uh, that, that was put out as they were doing a series of exhibits and I've got a copy of it. It's just a wonderful little book. Um, and again, what's neat is that was right about the same time that, uh, I think it was, it was Aldo Leopold that was doing an in like a, a job there at the field museum. So you think about the crossover that, that would have been happening there, but, um, that was just one early kind of what I would call scientific treatise on the wild Turkey. Um, McElhaney, as he published Jordan's work included, uh, a, a pretty good biology 
section on the wild turkey that kind of gets into the origin of the turkey and talks a lot about some of the different, uh, you know, characteristics of wild versus domestic. And, and then as, as you continue by 1959, what you've had is a number of different state efforts and a few publications. There was a really, really good one uh, out of Vir- Virginia by uh, Henry Mosby. Um, there were several publications that existed talking about management and biology of the wild turkey. But in 1959, you had the first wild turkey symposium, absolutely groundbreaking and completely changed the game for where we're at today because you had all the heavy hitters of the day, Mosby and Bailey and, and John Lewis and, and, um, Gosh, I can't even think of uh, Jim Davis and A.W. Shorger and and all these biologists from across the country that got together and said, hey, let's talk about what we think and what we know and let's try to figure out where we're going with this. And and again, you know, as you said, Mr. Toxie, now they had the, the cannon net and the rocket net kind of developed out of the cannon net. They had radio telemetry, which is another huge piece of the puzzle to study wild turkeys. They, they had a lot of good information that they'd learned through trying to uh, transplant what I would call domestic turkeys, so game farm turkeys. Um, they learned a lot uh, by doing that in terms of, you know, kind of how to manage turkeys, but what they didn't have is success because those turkeys were not robust enough to survive in the environments they were in. Um, but now they had funding from Pittman Robertson. They, they had the technology through these new tools. Um, they had the combined ability now to get together and talk as a, as a group of peers. And, and what they ended up with, what, what I love that if you can find a copy of that 1959 First Wild Turkey Symposium, it's actually a great book to read because it's written um, in, in the actual dialogue. So, you know, it'll, it'll tell you which biologist asked the question and who's responding and you can see the back and forth. And what I can tell you is the sum of that was, Hey, we are transplanting all these game farm turkeys and virtually none are surviving. But as we've found now with the net, we can trap and then track these turkeys with radio telemetry that are wild they're virtually creating completely new populations and taking off. And so, so that gives them then, uh, you know, the, the final kind of confidence to say, let's shift gears, let's work together. And you started seeing some turkeys move between states a bit more. And uh, we were kind of off and running already by, by 59 then on the path to where we're at today. That's amazing because he's talking about, the 1950s and early 60s, and and this was going on, and these developments with radio telemetry were, you know, very happening. Because you've got to think, then AM radio was what somebody would have listened to back then, right? So they they were those guys were really innovative. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and 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 again, what population data I can find kind of substantiates kind of where things w- were. So if you had a, a couple hundred thousand turkeys at the most in, in like the 1940s, then if you think about how long it took that population to double, um, it would have been, uh, you know, 10 years it took to double it with, with the efforts they were trying to make just through trying to establish populations. And, and uh, that was, again, mostly 
game farm turkeys. So I would say what they actually had more success with was tr- creating more laws between the 40s and 50s to try to to try to restrict some hunting, protect some turkeys. A bunch of states closed their their turkey seasons, so they were able to double and get to about 400,000 turkeys in the 50s, and then it took uh, 20 years to double that. Uh, after that. So then it would have been like in the um, 70s where you had just over um, a million turkeys. And then it took, uh, you know, 10 years to double that. So by the 80s, you had 2 million. And then you doubled that again in the 90s, right? And then you've got 4 million and, and then quickly sped up to six over 6 million. Now we've actually kind of come back down from that historic high. But it was it was quite the trajectory, you know, as, the, as, as we got the combination of funding, protection, uh, habitat, maintenance, um, all those pieces kind of kind of quickly got the turkey uh, back in areas where it needed to be. We we still have that ability today. I think we we just have to be curious to learn a little bit more. And um, I I like Wayne Bailey as a biologist. Um, and you know he was one of the early ones with the National Wild Turkey Federation that that I think you know he's kind of what I would consider a, a moderate. We 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 owe a debt of gratitude to go, guys like Wayne Bailey for being pioneers, uh, fathers of the of the american wild turkey and and no different than mr fox you know did in in alabama i mean if everybody uh, that did that um you know looks we look at it now we can see where things were and where things came from but wayne wayne bailey was was pretty well known for when he was asked a question versus he felt obligated to give the answer he would he he might be known to say you know I don't know, but I sure would like to find out. And I think that's the right mentality to take into it is we need more curiosity. Are we curious enough to, to figure out why turkeys are not thriving in areas they should be? And, and again, that's what I love about the the, the stamp and the, and, and the dollars that are going to help us to get there because we all love turkeys that hunt them, or at least we should. Uh, I mean, that at the core, we want we want there to be more turkeys <laughs> right that that we can we can see passed on to others and and uh, clearly we, we had a great trajectory we we did it once we still have all the the tools in our toolbox we just need the curiosity and the the uh for you know kind of a fortitude to to do that again indeed so Brent let me ask you this so with all that you've read and studied you're you're obviously well read and but when you look around the country and you hear about stories of places not having turkeys do you have an opinion or a thought of what might be going on i mean this would strictly be yours yeah well what what i will say is again i i've learned this in my professional career as well as in my leisure pursuit with turkeys is i'm never the smartest person in the room and and I would qualify any of my comments to to be exactly that. I'm not the smartest person in the room. What I try to do is surround myself with the smart people, and and then then I can actually get better and learn more. Books is a way I do that. You know, I, I've I've uh, certainly watched a lot of the podcasts and and I go to the conventions and and uh, I, so so what I'll say is probably not a lot different than what you've heard others say. I don't think it's one thing. I think it's certainly a combination of things. Uh, I think that there's clearly forces at work that 
uh, we understand, right? Where, where I live in, in Southern Iowa, what I can tell you is we're facing an increasing habitat loss here. We're, we're continuing to see a lot of border habitat destroyed as farm equipment gets bigger and more valuable and, and the need for grain increases. And, and that's a hard trend to, you know, to, to try to balance in a farming community where you, you need to have uh, ability for farmers to, you know, to have uh, wealth and, and a, and a, good living at the same time you're trying to manage the wildlife within those boundaries. Uh, so there's parts of the country that certainly habitat's a part of it. We've, we've increased the, the number of um, predators and, and as well as um, invasive species that have changed the environments turkeys live in. I'm not saying that they're to, completely to blame, but certainly there, there's again, puzzle pieces there we need to understand. There's disease. I mean, I, I know I sent turkey legs into the Iowa Department of Natural Resources and and uh, saw that LPDV uh, virus is definitely pre- you know becoming more prevalent here. Um, looks like that's fatal to turkeys, although they can live a long time with it. Can't say I understand it nearly well enough. Want to learn more? Um, but there's there's disease we've got to think of. Um, there's, there's new hunting technologies and of course season dates. I I will admit this on this podcast and I'm embarrassed to do so, but years ago I lobbied as a state board member of the Turkey Federation here in Iowa to get our season moved up. It seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, Turkeys were gobbling and that's when we want to be hunting them. What I've learned since then is that was, that was not a wise pursuit. Um, making, you know, making your season too early can have a detrimental effect to turkeys that they, they need time to breed. We, we need to give turkeys time to, to replace themselves. And, and I know there's a lot of people struggling across the country. I've, I've heard all the, the horror stories and listened to the, you know, to the hunters that are quite miffed because opportunities being taken away or moved back. But again, I think it's just another piece of the puzzle that we have to figure out how do we sometimes help the turkeys win? That's that's the question we should be asking ourselves. Mm. Yeah, it's it seems like it's a death by a thousand cuts. I've, I've heard it referred to that. It's, yeah, and you know, habitat lost, uh, unbelievable and seemingly unstoppable influx of of pigs taking over all sorts of uh, habitat. Obviously, predation. Yep. Um, and then I think one of the interesting things we don't have to get into it today, but clearly there's there are really critical points in the history of the hunting of the wild turkey where you have to look at the landscape uh, of tactics that are adopted and whenever some are adopted at a scale in mass that that can't be supported you have to reevaluate if that tactic is maybe unsustainable when adopted at a at a mass scale you know there are times throughout history where if you don't make that uh tough decision and like we all say make some sacrifices then you know you might lose your population of turkeys are certainly lose them to a point that is unrecognizable from the their population highs. Yeah, I completely agree, Daniel. I know that's a sensitive subject, but, but again, if we love turkeys, what are we willing to do differently, you know, to ensure turkeys are thriving? And, and at the end of the day, it's, it's not about an arrow release or a trigger pull. And if that's what it is about, then the turkey's doomed, right? We've got to get out of that mindset. We've got to, we've got to find ways to, you know, fair chase, is a great thing for us to continue to talk about because as, as methods and technologies change, fair chase also has to change. What, Cause what we know maybe has to be applied in a new light. So I completely point. agree with that. Well, 
it just brings the point the the reason the existence for the Mossy Oak brand and the the basic foundation of that is what we call now gamekeepers and and just keeping that in context about you know enjoying and creating um that abundance, that life of abundance through the wildlife. But so a good example is we manage, you can't do it federally. You know, you can kind of migratory birds maybe and stuff, but, you know, deer, turkeys, especially is a state by state, region by region thing. And so that helps us a lot that each state can make their own decisions specific to that state, state's needs, problems, growth, lack of growth in the population and so forth. But our point, what I'm getting to as gamekeepers, is that we feel like, and I just, you know, people out there listening to this are going to get tired of me saying I'm blue in the face. It is to take it to another level to make it happen. We've got to all take responsibility for whatever place we have. You know, if it, whether it's 30, I say it all, 30, 300, 3,000, whatever, part of a club, own some land, or just have influence on it, food farming or something. We've got to have that awareness and take that into our own hands. It's not going to be enough for our federal government or our state governments to put in laws to protect them and so forth. Everybody that cares has got to pitch in and make that happen. It, it, you know, it's just like how do you make a lot of money one dollar at a time? How do we change the wild turkeys' worlds one acre at a time? You know, and I hear us talking about loss of habitat and all these things. But if you can take care of your own place. And I know you want to worry about the rest of the world. That's fine. But if you will take care of your own place better, uh, let us help you. Challenge us to help you better. And whoever else out there, your state wildlife agencies are incredible. We can get there through that gamekeeper mentality of, you know, every acre matters. Yeah. Yeah, it, you're right. You're, so I'm looking at everybody's faces. I, everybody's oh, yeah. got a lot of – very positive about this. Mm-hmm. And we need to get him back and just talk exclusively exclusively about collecting old calls because I bet yeah, – Yeah, oh, before, before we get off all yeah. that, we have to hear him talk about Joe Hutto because he's probably knows more about Joe Hutto and, uh, uh, well, you know, his writings and readings and work on imprinting. Uh, I think that's some of the most fascinating uh, – you know, writings in the history of, of turkeys. Uh, talk about Joe Hutto a little bit. Yep. Well, I, I, I've just been messaging him again here the last few days. Uh, just, just such an interesting guy. I mean, I, if anybody is able to be a turkey whisperer, it is Joe Hutto. The, the guy was a turkey for for quite a for a couple years, right? So yeah. So what's interesting is he's a naturalist. He's from uh, the Tallahassee area of Florida. He, he had done imprinting studies with wood ducks um, and some other species. Um, and uh, a, he had a couple local farmers that hit, a, hit turkeys, hen turkeys on the nest when they were, you know, doing some hay, brought Joe the eggs and, uh, and he decided he would do an imprinting study. He just kind of, did just kind of sp- sprung at the the moment right so he he uh began to vocalize to the eggs peep to them and talk to them in a human voice which i thought was quite brilliant so they got used to to both him as a turkey and as a human and uh, if you go back to some of those early writings i talked about um with with the the pilgrims and the settlers there there was a myth at the time that if you would would dunk a wild turkey egg in water just before it hatched you could domesticate the turkey. That, that's how you domesticated the <laughs> turkey. What I actually believe was happening is 
they were there physically when the egg was hatching and it wasn't the dunking it in the water. It was what Joe did. It's allowing that turkey when it hatches to see you. That's the first thing they see and you become their mother. And, and that's essentially what he did is while those turkeys were hatching, he got at face level with them again, said he was smart enough to know that if they hatch and the first thing they see is your boots, <laughs> they're not going to imprint in the same way. So here He'd been peeping to them, talking to them. They see his face when they hatch, and instantly there's a bond. And then he spent the next 18 months with those turkeys. And the only time that he wasn't with them is once they were up to roost, then he'd go in the house and sleep. And he'd be back out the next day in time to, to spend the day with those turkeys. Um, you know, and, and he goes through all the, the heartache and all the joy that you, you might expect, you know, he, right off the bat, he's got a snake that he's dealing with and there's some tragedy. And then, then he's got, you know, aerial predators he's fighting and, and all these different things that are happening. And, and you can see these turkeys, um, through the eyes of Joe who's spending time with them in terms of how they're adapting to their world, what their curiosity level is, what's innate in them, what they know about danger and what they know about safety. Quite interesting. And, and, and I think I would tell people in it, Daniel, I appreciate you bringing it up because it's one of those books that every turkey hunter should read. You'll care more about the turkey when you're done and you'll understand a heck of a lot more about the turkey in the world it lives in. It is absolutely brilliant what Joe does. And, and uh, by the end, you know, it's, it's so neat to see that he's even made an, an intergenerational change where uh, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but there is a point at which one of the hens that he raised brings back her poults to meet Joe, if you will. I mean, just extraordinary. I mean, it's, <laughs> wow. it's amazing to, to see what kind of mind a turkey has, right? Turkeys are social creatures, and we know that. And, and what we often as hunters uh, see is that, is that uh, you know, hierarchical piece, right, where they're constantly fighting for pole position. But it's much more than that. Turkeys truly care for the members of their circle. They depend on each other. And it's quite neat to read that book and see, see, see how that all comes together. I will say about Joe, one last thing. Joe's not a normal guy. He's extraordinary. <laughs> when I talked to Joe uh, last spring, he told me how he was uh, in the swamp near his house and he's handling the, the water moccasins and how gentle they were and how wonderful. He sent me this week a picture of, of a water moccasin said, it's the same one that came last year. I'm so excited. And I took it back down to the creek and I know it's going to come back up. And I just said, Joe, you're not normal. man. You're, you're <laughs> so what's the name of his book? Now, my, what am yeah, I I've never book? heard of this guy. Where did I miss out on Joe Hutto? This is great. Yep, it's, it's called illumination in the flatwoods. I have, now, heard, I have, heard, flatwoods I have heard that. Being, yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's a brilliant book. It's, there's a PBS nature special they made on it, which is well worth going and watching as well called my life as a turkey. I've seen I've that. that too. Uh, my and, friend Andy sent me a DVD of that the other day. It's incredible. Mm. It, it is really, it really is. I, I gave one to baby Toxie when Neil had his first son, because I said, you're, this is now your life as a turkey. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That what about Maybe. 10 years ago? Was that about when it surfaced in a big way? Seems like it was eight it or was, 10 years ago. 
1996 is when the book published it. So he did, he did his study prior to 96. Oh, wow. Um, you know, what's cool about Joe is Joe's kind of a, he's a little bit of a Renaissance man as a way you, you'll find he's a, he's a great writer. Um, he did imprinting studies with bighorn sheep and mule deer and wrote books about those as well. And and they're extraordinary. I mean, anybody that can get accepted into the, the, the culture and family of bighorn sheep and mule deer and turkeys. Wow. That's a, that's a whole different level of naturalist. He's also quite an artist. He illustrates his own books um, he was actually was, and I didn't know this until just recently when he told me, but he was the Florida wild turkey stamp contest went winner in 1989-90. And, uh, and I know because he was gracious enough to send me the beautiful print um, and, and one of the stamps and just a super guy, but, but you know, ultra talented. Even even living with those turkeys, he's not anti-hunting. That's that's one of the things that really strikes me about Joe is he's he he was a turkey hunter. He doesn't turkey hunt anymore, but he totally gets turkey hunters. He's he's been on the Turkey Hunter podcast. I'm sure he'd be willing to come and, and talk to y'all. But just a just a super guy that that knows turkeys inside and out. Hmm. I'm gonna have to get on eBay and try to find one of those stamps before this episode is released because I know people are gonna look for the Joe Hutto Florida stamp. Wow. Yep. Well, look, Brent, I, this has been fascinating having you on here, and I, I would like to uh, let, let's do a podcast dedicated to the collecting calls because I think no that, that's a rabbit hole we could go down for a long time. And look, so if I understand right now, uh, you know that we like to ask guests trivia questions, and it's my understanding you've got a trivia question for us. Oh wow! And I will throw this out that we're going to play Mac. Who will we be playing for? We're playing for Scooby D that left us a podcast in February. Scooby D. He left a review? He okay. did. It was a good review. Okay, so Scooby D, Scooby D, if we answer this, one of us answers this question, correct, you win. What do they win, Mike? They win an Avery Heritage game strap. I'm, I'm worried that we won't get this right. You know, Scooby, I hope we don't let you down, but if, let, let's – what do you think, guys? Let's let's give it a whirl, Brent. All right. Well, so being being a food science guy as well as a lover of the outdoors, my question would be, if you what what is a food, or you could call it a food ingredient that never spoils? It's a natural food that never spoils. Yep. Oh, Mr. I, I was going to jump in there, but I'll let Mr. Know it all. You want to say it at the same time? No, because I'll probably be wrong. <laughs> I'm just assuming honey. Honey is what I was going to yeah. say. Nailed it. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh, nice. Well done. Yeah. yeah. Scooby Thanks, Dick. Shaggy. Thanks, I mean, Scooby. Now, the, the food science question is why is that? Well, it, honey has a hygroscopicity, which is kind of, it means that. That's it's exactly so, what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. It, it's so thick, right? Think about how thick it is, how dense it is that. Uh, bacteria can't grow in it because it will, the pressure, it's like if you dive down in the ocean and you've got hundreds of feet of water on top of you crushing you, that's that's the environment of bacteria is in wow. and honey. That it actually crushes the cell wall. That's crazy. Mm. You think we would learn in science by now to replicate that in some form since it's amazing because I, I, I eat, I use honey in my coffee every single morning half for probably 10 years and just Totally addicted to it. Love it. Now, not that I consume a lot, but I, you know, yeah. if I have two cups, I have two spoons of 
honey a day. Is that honey from Andrews Apiaries? It, it, it is in some shout out. Sometimes there's also uh, Daniel's fiance's dad, who I know has a oh cool small yeah. beekeeping and apiary. You know, thanks for that. Yeah, brownie points. What's the name? Asylum Hills Honey. Okay, that's right. Kendall Garraway. He he's been Halifax Honey is the alternative name. That's right. Well, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that they've found honey like in tombs that that's hundreds of years old and it's still good. Is five it? five thousand years old. Yeah, that's wow. crazy. Yeah. I did not Egyptian know that. Tombs. Yep. So, yeah, it's it's acidic as well, so that acidity also helps. But yeah, it's it's a pretty remarkable uh, bee vomit is a great substance. Wow. So what's the what's the trivia question that we have for him? It, you know what? I don't know that we have one for him. We, I would, we, I would we're be just gonna have. We were, yeah, he would be my ideal partner on like a trivia pursuit, especially outdoor stuff. So, so I doubt you could stump well, him. Well, I've got a question. If anybody thinks of a trivia question in the meantime, I should have had one prepared. But uh, what, do you have? Uh, to, well, two questions. One: What was your most memorable or exciting pursuit of some printed turkey media that was the hardest to track down that you finally found? And the other one: Since you don't actually have everything. What's your holy grail that you've never been able to track down? Well, the thing I've never been able to track down is a, is a dust jacket for, for this uh, original McElhaney book. It's got a really neat um, picture of two gobblers. And it was, that picture was taken by Charles Jordan. So, so the, you know, the, the guy that actually wrote the book, he took a series of photos um, of wild turkeys and, and if you think about when, uh, I'm trying to remember when the Kodak camera came out, it was 1888, um, where Kodak camera makes, you know, pictures possible for the outdoorsman. And, um, so he had taken these photos and, uh, I I'm still hunting. I know, I know of two books that have a dust jacket. It was paper thin. So, I mean, that's, that's what I'm still, that's one thing I'm still seeking, um, I would say the, 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 the thing that I love to find the most was this original copy of 10th Legion. Um, you know, this original copy of 10th Legion is super rare. There were only 555 of those printed. And uh, who knows how many have been destroyed. I, I've had three over time. Um, and I know, Daniel, I, you know, helped get you all hooked up with one. Um, they're, they're just uh, a gem if you can find them. And you know, five, $6,000 is, is an asking price for one. And it's, it's the same book that's been reprinted, but who doesn't love the original, right? Just like original Bottomland, who doesn't like the original? Yeah. I like that. Did you find yours at a gas station? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, it was an oil change, change place. Oil change place in Mississippi. It yeah, did, did. I was going to say that. Yeah. Brent. Three or four books there I found. Yeah. <laughs> Brent last year. Yeah. He, uh, when, when Colonel Tom Kelly was going to, uh, finally come down to camp and, and hunt with all of us and Papa. Uh, we wanted to have, I mean, obviously it was a daunting task, but we, there was no other man for the job to help us track that down than Brent. And about a month before camp, uh, Brent found one and incredibly generously let me buy it. He could have bought it. You know, he just told you to ask a price, five, $6,000. He could have bought it for less than 10% of that and sold it the next day because he has probably 20 other people who've asked him to find that book for him. Uh, he immediately called me. I was on the dirt road, Sumterville Road at Shamula, bought it. And yeah, he, because of Brent, we're, we had that book there for Colonel Kelly. And uh, there's a video that's not safe for the Internet of when we when Colonel Kelly, he walked from the living room to the kitchen and I showed him the book. And uh, he 
said a couple of colorful, yeah, colorful <laughs> yeah. Uh, expletives and, and told us to put it up and send our kids for through a couple semesters of college with it. How about that? Well, that's awesome, Brent. Yeah, and Mr. Bobby, I will say one one last shout out to to Daniel and and to your daughter Jesse, who have been just so great to work with. Myself and another enthusiast, Jason Worley, who's a very good writer and another great historian, um, have been doing some book reviews of contemporary books and a few classics, uh, and those are on the Mossy Oak Turkey website. And I would just say. I would encourage people to go and look, look at those reviews um, and get those books because there are some absolute gems that are still being written by people. And uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to help connect people to it. So thanks. Yeah, I was going to say that in closing, but the two things, one is I think two of the best follows that nobody knows about, you know, everybody knows to follow David Holly, Walter Report, Dr. Chamberlain, Lashley, Dr. Sturbance, all those, you know, really mainstream Turkey accounts, but Brent's personal social media gobble getter. You have to search his name because the gobble getter is, is, is spelled not naturally. And then uh, Jason Worley, who is the old pro turkey hunter on Instagram. I really, that for if you care about turkeys or turkey history or the culture of turkey hunting or just turkey hunting in general, uh, both of their social media feeds are, are phenomenal. And they were both very instrumental. The stamp uh, that we released would not have happened without uh, the two of them. And what he said about the website. By the time this podcast is released, hopefully, you know, we have a bunch of their book reviews online, but we're going to start branding that as the Bottomland Book Club. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that'll be a thing uh, by then. Brent will be a frequent contributor, hopefully, uh, and, until he gets tired of, of writing about turkeys, which is probably never going to happen. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we'll, we'll cover any and all things because uh, the, there's kind of two genres that he's talked about. One is things that are historically significant, but not necessarily all that readable. But then there's a wealth of books that he didn't get into today that are very readable. And if you were just going to recommend something that somebody wants to sit in the woods on a slow morning for a couple extra hours and read about turkeys, uh, there's there's an incredible amount of really readable books out there that, that Brent is, and Jason are both really knowledgeable about. So yeah, all things, uh, it'll evolve in all things hunting and outdoor conservation, being a gamekeeper uh, types of, of literature. Um, but right now it's focused on turkeys since we're in the spring. Yeah. Of the Bottomland Book Club. That sounds exciting. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, this is this has been a lot of fun. Is there anything left unsaid, Dudley? I, I think we should wait till next week on last, Dudley, okay. if, if you don't mind. And because I, I think several people need to get out of here. Looks like Neil walked in here. He's got Fitz with him. What a beautiful uh, dog. Is that Fitz or Timbo? I'm not. I think that's Fitz. Fitz is roaming the hall somewhere. Somebody got. He's got the best blood on. We're just no longer blood on the biology. It's blood on a blood fox vest. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of blood on it now. So uh, this morning was the 14th turkey kill. This best. Yeah, Neil, could you come to this microphone, please, and kind of let us ask you a little bit about that? Now, now Brent, I know you can't see Neil. Just trust us. There's a big ugly guy just sat down. Hey, Brent. <laughs> Uglier than me. How big. you doing? Nice, <laughs> doing nice well. to hear you. I was giving him an update. We have this uh, Mr. Fox vest prototype. That, uh, that we've been sending around and different people have been hunting with it every day of the season this year. And uh, we took a friend of ours, Hunter Farrier, uh, turkey hunting this morning and he shot a turkey with Daniel and me and uh, we got a little extra blood on the seat on our four and a half mile walk out this morning. So uh, anyway, I think Hunter's turkey is the 14th turkey killing the best so far this year. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. A, I mean, it's it a beautiful spring morning. What else can you say? It, it, it's a really, really neat vest. And so I know it's kind of under wraps. You had not let people see photos. But if somebody's listening and they want to get one of these things next year, what do they do? 
Well, yeah, yeah I was going to address weight. that too, but the <laughs> weight. Somebody, somebody who wasn't going to send it around, you know, and it was inevitable. We didn't really, it didn't really bother us, but the, there's a picture of the patch from the vest uh, that someone posted on the Mississippi Turkey Hunters Facebook group. So now we, we, officially have a link that we're sharing with people that if you want to leave your phone number name uh, and email address so that you're the first to know when we have formal information about how to buy this uh, you can do that so if you you know if you go look on Mossy X website by the time this is released probably now um, I know we're probably after this is recorded going to have to go write something in the Mississippi Turkey Hunters group <laughs> you have 10 days yeah a lot, of, a lot of people are, are asking about it now and they can't uh, figure out some people don't even know it's real they just think it's fake so we got to formally address it yeah, um, but yeah, they can. People will be able to sign up and leave some information so that when we do have formal, uh, more stuff to release about it, that they'll be the first to know. Dudley, you've got a lot of. Do you are you hunting in the vest tomorrow? Yeah. That's the rumor. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the um, the list of people there's uh, killed a turkey. Bobby, you killed a turkey with yeah. it at the dummy line. Lanny killed one yesterday at the dummy line. Will Dixon killed one with me. Um, David Holly killed a turkey. Jess Rayleigh killed a turkey in it. So uh, the list is starting to grow. Dudley? Pressure's on. Pressure's yeah, on. pressure's on. Yeah, so, yeah, it's been, uh, I guess it's becoming known as the Traveling Fox Fest, though. So we still got a lot of, a lot of, a little bit of season left. So hopefully we'll get a little more blood on it. It's a great-looking vest. It, it really is. Do y'all smell feet? Yeah. Well, you got I, three hazes in the. In I'm not the wearing room. shoes. I'm, I'm also have wet socks. I've been walking through yeah. the woods. With we walked. Uh, sock feet. I walked. I walked. Uh, I walked yet. at least four or five miles with a boot full of water this morning. Oh, okay. Well, I, I knew I was getting a whiff of something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Was well, there anything else we need to say before we get out of here, Brent? It's been so much fun. Yeah, this was. I think they one. can smell my feet through the microphone. <laughs> I think Dudley's going to leave the field trip when we go visit Brent's house in his uh, oh, in yeah. his history room. So whenever we do our uh hopefully we'll get brent down here in person and uh whenever we do another because i know there's there's a whole lot we didn't get to talk about today especially if we want to talk about the history of turkey calls which that could easily be an entire episode that yes. would be really really interesting to listen to so yep uh, hopefully well, brent we can we can do that again yeah i just want to say thanks for how much you care about what we love because it just helps everybody appreciate it more when they have someone who cares this much about it and has put his life into you know restoring grabbing on to the history of everything sure and uh so thank you so yeah. much that is so essential today and we appreciate it i just don't know how much well, thank you and back at you all right i mean i think uh this 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 group right here gets it and uh, excited about what you're all doing so thanks for that yeah and brand I, I will say uh i guess i walked in uh late way late but uh i have a laundry list of questions for you for another time and another day so We'll, uh, we'll we're gonna do this again. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I, Can't wait. Well, I want to make an effort to get you, Brent, get you down here. I think yep. in person it'd be really great. And maybe wouldn't it be fantastic if one of our listeners had this dust jacket that he's talking about and could help him out with yeah, it? That would so, be great. Yeah, maybe some, maybe something good like that will happen for you, Brent. <laughs> he deserves it. I think I've seen one actually way a long time ago. Wow. I'm pretty sure I saw one at, at, at someone's house or at the hunting camp where I grew up in. Yeah. I bet I mean, I could get my hands on it, but I do remember seeing it. Right. As he described it. Very cool. Yeah. Well, actually, this was the last thing I was going to say, but most people don't know. uh, And he, I can't remember if I told this to Brent, but Ray Berryhill, uh, who worked for Mississippi State for a really long time, until the late 90s, he was supposedly the caretaker and foremost turkey historian uh, and had the, you know, the, the, before the internet, had the leading collection 
of wild turkey literature back in the day when it was not necessarily as easy to track some of this stuff down. Ray, who's published, he pu- helped publish the series of Neil Koss books and some other stuff, but he's got a collection outside of Starville that I didn't even know about until relatively recently. But when I talked to him, um, he said that he used to be the leading collector of literature and printed turkey media in the country. And now he passed the crown on to Brent. So he confirms that Brent is the uh, leading caretaker uh, in the, in the country for uh, the culture of written media with, with turkey history. So that's important stuff, Brent. And we, yeah, I, I, the crown I, has passed from the golden triangle on a Brent. So there's a cool connection with local, uh, how about local that? Mossy, yeah. Yeah, t- uh, there's no, nobody on the horn over there. I'll toot one for you on <laughs> <Yeah>. that. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Right, that's yeah, the horn. Yeah, that's the one that go. matters. Yeah. You know, Richie sometimes kind of gets involved in something else. Huh? But look, guys, this has been a lot of fun. Daniel, thank you for being here. Neil, it's exciting <laughs> what you're doing with the Traveling Fox Vest. We appreciate the updates. Dudley, you've got a lot of pressure. I hope you sleep good tonight. Get no ready doubt. to go. Time uh, always hot, hot all day. Dudley, do you have a plan? Do you, do you want to let us know just real quick? Well, uh, I'm going to hit my personal family farm first and hope to – Hope to get a turkey there and show it. Uh, my dad's buried there. I'm going to plop that thing down by wow, the vest. and that's awesome. Take a picture of it, and uh, then I'm going to, if I don't, if that doesn't happen, I'm going to hunt my way home. Good. Well, hopefully you have a couple feathers to lay by. It's going to be a beautiful day tomorrow, so that's a yeah. good day. Yep, yep, softly and carry a big stick. Yeah. Well, good Mac, luck. you got anything mm-hmm. to add? There's thumbs up, so everybody's supporting you, Dudley. We're all cheering for you. Richie, what about you over there? You're ready to go. Richie's fixing to go hunting tomorrow himself. So, look, we've had a lot of fun, Toxie. Thank you for being here. Uh, you've had, I know you've had a busy day. Daniel, Dudley, it's uh, Neil. Please, let's, uh, we, let's put some socks on and work on that. Why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.